Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Ahead this hour, you're going to meet a prodigy in the food world. Many chefs dream about being on a TV show or cooking alongside Chef Alice Waters. Rahana Bizarret Martinez has done that and more, and she's still a teenager. We catch up with the busy teen to talk about her first cookbook. And later in the show, in New Britain, there is a front yard where the grass is out and flowers, fruit trees, berry patches, and veggies are in. Producer Tegan Engel talks with a family who turned their yard into a pick-what-you-need garden for their community. But first, producer Catrice Claudio teams up with Tegan to talk with a young chef they're both really excited about. Rahana Bizret Martinez was a finalist on Top Chef Junior, and she's cooked at some of the best restaurants in the world. Places like Dominique Ansel Bakery, Chez Panisse, and Tartine Bakery. Her first cookbook is Flavor Plus Us. Catrice and Tegan talk with Rahana about her book and how she develops recipes celebrating the cuisines she loves. Here's Catrice. So I have to start off with what it was like to open your book. We were introduced to the spread of literature that spanned from Toni Morrison and Isabel Wilkerson to Tony Tipton Martin, Martin Yan, uh, Samin Nosrat. And it really was something that was profound to me because even in this vast, diverse collection of literature, you very intentionally dedicated that page on that image to Black and brown girls in the past, present, and future. So thank you for that love letter. Yeah. And it was really important to me that I celebrated like a lot of the amazing authors that really inspired me growing up. It was almost like a altar of sorts of like some of my favorite writing and authors and recipes and just like inspirational people. So people from like Jessica B. Harris, Zoriel Hurston, who's been one of my favorites for a while, um, to like cookbooks like Alice Waters cookbook, Rima Seal, Brandon Jew, Curtis Stone, Emerald Gossi. So all those people really influenced me in life. That's why I wanted to dedicate the book to the past, present and future of black and brown girls as well. Because hopefully this one can maybe influence someone in the future. And I think it also is built off of all the amazing Black women in the past who have done so much work to even have like this opportunity available for me today. Oh, my goodness. So I think there's a lot of power in that intention, right? And I'm going to kind of call you out a little bit because I do believe that you have a lot in common with those authors that you've celebrated, which is the ability to go beyond like the vast wall of differences into the nuances. And you kind of dance in that and show the beauty in that. And was it super important for you to make sure that it was bigger than what makes us different? The way that I looked at it is not really about the differences that we had and more about celebrating just like those integral parts of our identities, like whether that's just like being Black across the diaspora or different regional techniques here in California. I think something that's so amazing about like food and other cultures and people 
people is that we all have different expressions of our identities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really wonderful. And I, I'm not sure if I'd like consider that something that separates us, but it definitely is something that is a way to like celebrate each other and bring us closer. Yeah, absolutely. I love how you do that in this book. Um, you grew you. up in a family that is Mexican and Haitian and also in this super diverse city mm-hmm. of Oakland, California. And it's clear that that yeah. has had just such an amazing impact on your cooking. And something that I loved was that your recipes reflect like the global cuisine, not only the cuisine of your own heritage. It really Mm. expresses like the cuisines that you grew up around. But I was curious about how do you think about the importance of honoring culinary traditions, but not being confined by them? So I think there's something really important to honoring culinary traditions, especially when there's such like deep history when it comes to certain dishes that are like important to celebrations or meaningful events in time. So I think it's important to like honor a recipe. But then I also think that there's a celebration that comes out of cooking things that are familiar to you. So I I think the recipes in Flavor Plus Us are kind of coming to the forefront more as like a celebration of different times in my life and different people who have influenced me, whether that's like big cookbook authors or my family friends. In that way, I really hope the book is celebrating those cultures. Yeah, absolutely. I thought about the recipe, the macaroni au gratin. Could you talk a little bit about that recipe? Because I think it sort of exemplifies like how you're drawing on culinary traditions, but then making them your own. Definitely. So growing up Haitian, I definitely wanted to put familiar Haitian recipes in the book. And that was one of the the items growing up that I just like absolutely loved. It's a clear telling of like time and history when we're looking at the spelling and the pronunciation of it and the way like Haitian Creole is influencing a recipe that definitely found its way through like French colonization. And I think there's a little bit of like anguish in that experience, but you also kind of get to celebrate like your culture and the way that we have like, I don't know, kind of come so far in that way, especially when you look through like the history of macaroni in the U.S. and when it came from like Chef James Hemming, who was one of the first black chefs at the White House. So it has a powerful history and that's something that I really love about it. For our listeners, could you describe the dish so people know what it is and how how yeah. you adapted it from the tradition to what you include in the cookbook? Many cultures have their own like macaroni dish. This one is inspired by the Haitian version, which definitely has like usually made with rigatoni. I added like red bell pepper and onion, like a similar Trinity type ingredient combo that's similar in like Haitian food. But here I added some French and like Italian cheeses that maybe you wouldn't normally find in the recipe, but I think it adds a different layer to the cheeses and the ingredients. And so in that way, it was my own like personal preference and spin on it. You talk a lot about the celebration of these recipes and their histories and these cultures. And one thing that I notice happens often with sharing culture is that people have a lot of pride in either demonstrating their knowledge of it or showing their connection to it. But a lot of people do not know how to share pride without misapplying ownership sometimes. And you definitely executed against 
that understanding of what it means to truly give love to a culture without having to take ownership. Your oh, crunch okay. cake, of course, your crunch cake recipe speaks to this uplifting Chinese culture's impact on American restaurant culture. You often connect the true histories of these recipes and really celebrate its impact on its surrounding cultures and the value that it's added to the surrounding cultures, including the dominant culture. Can you describe the importance of sharing proper historical context throughout that book? When taking on the process of creating Flavor Plus Us, I really wanted to be like respectful to um, the cultures that I wanted to celebrate. And it was something that I talked with my literary agent about at the time. I like expressed my concerns and I and I wanted to approach it in a way that was celebration and not ownership. We had kind of had like a long discussion on the phone. And the conclusion that I came to was that these recipes had like value and meaning to not only me, but so many other people. Putting my expression of those recipes in the book really just celebrated those recipes more. And I think it's a fine line to like celebration and claiming something, but Mm -hmm. I really hope that I approached it in a way that was not, I don't know. It was perfect. Another recipe where you give some important history is around the compound butter. Could you describe what the recipe is and then give us some of the important history that you include in the book? Compound butter is normally a butter that's mixed with other flavors to create a different infused flavored butters. So that can be anything from like a honey butter to a red pepper butter to herby butter that you put in your turkey. So a compound butter has a lot of different, I guess, expressions and different ways to to use it. Um, and then when it comes to the reason I put it in my book is because it definitely has more of a complicated history. The idea of like ownership and attributes to European food is often associated with compound butter. But we also see that butter did originate in Africa before. And so when you put it together, you kind of you wonder if, oh, people were mixing butter with seasonings back then as well. And you kind of have to think about the way recipes kind of naturally come about. And that's something that really interested me for sure. Mm. It's so great. I am so impressed with the amount of learning that you do about all of your ingredients and food, and it just makes everything so much richer and is so impressive given your age. And um, it's just amazing. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Something that I loved about your book is that your curiosity around food just shines through. And I related to this so much because I got into cooking, I think, in a very similar way as you, not on a reality show, but Mm -hmm. by the love of food in my family and then being Mm -hmm. out in the community in cultural food markets. You talk in your book about how you um, go to different cultural food markets and talk to people who are in line and learn about ingredients in that way. And I was wondering if you could talk about why this is so important to you to connect with people and ingredients in these smaller cultural food markets. One of my favorite things to do is definitely go to these cultural food markets and learn as much as I can about the ingredients there. And I think it's really important to talk to everyday people just out of like genuine curiosity, because I think there's so many recipes that are just like tucked away into families that have been around for like years and years. And it's so cool to just like 
learn more about certain traditions that other people have that I may have never thought about. I think it's really sweet to hear about other people's small traditions, whether it's like a simple snack or a huge meal that they always do. I I just love it so much. Is there a favorite recipe or ingredient that you learned about in this way? Like, was there some revelation or discovery in the grocery aisle that got you super excited recently? Ooh, recently I've been back from school. So I've been doing a little bit more shopping than I normally do. But I also have been just cooking more in the kitchen. I took up some some shifts at Chez Panisse at my old job because okay. I just really love just on the side, them. just like <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> um, but from there, I got to hear so much about what everyone else has been cooking and loving to cook. And there's always like international interns. And this one intern was from. London and she mentioned that she loved this dish called bubble and squeak which (laughs) is the most hilarious sounding name but it's like Christmas day leftovers that are made into these like fritters Mm. and something about that just seemed so interesting and I feel like I need to try it but yeah bubble and squeak apparently is is something that's really traditional it's actually like a really special recipe to her that's so telling because in I feel like over Thanksgiving, which is a very like U.S. and American holiday, we always like eat the leftovers and people always make little fritters or pancakes or something out of it. So it's cool to see how that kind of ritual extends outside of just that specific holiday and is kind of like muscle memory for most people. Yeah. You know, in your book, you talk so much about this curiosity and exploration But can you share some tips for people who maybe don't already do that? What tips do you have to encourage people to get a little more curious or to explore a little bit more around their food? I think my tips to get people to explore a little bit more is to examine like what they really love to eat. If you're someone who really enjoys corn, like try other recipes that have corn in it, whether that's tamales or elote or cornbread or anything from any like level of corn recipe and you might really enjoy the okra that's served in the gumbo on the side with cornbread like I think there's so many ways to discover food and so many ingredients have such different like applications so it's like either you love the application or you love the ingredient so (laughs) right it's kind of like you mix and match what you prefer and so I actually have a curiosity because you created two forms of scones, the savory salsa scone and the concha scone. Mm-hmm. First of all, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with concha as a bread, but to flip it into a scone was refreshing. It was innovative. It was new. What was, what made that a must-do recipe for you? Like, what inspired that? I really love conchas. I love panduce, and I know I wanted to celebrate that in the book for sure. And then I was looking at different cultures and recipes that had that kind of crackle top. And we see in certain like pastries, there is a crackling that's put on top of not scones, but like shoe pastries. I want to say it's like pata shoe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just thought that was such an interesting combo. And, and you can see like in Mexican culture, there's also a crunchy topping. And then I feel like when you get scones, sometimes there's like a thick sugar glaze that they put on top. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I really liked the the breadiness of a scone and I wanted to combine that with that like sugar topping from the conchas and and I love the decoration of the shell and all of those things so it was just a fun opportunity to like mix up two different recipes for sure in different cultures I could be wrong. I'm going to just ask you to educate me. The um, concha itself, is it tied to a tradition or a holiday or is it just a delicacy that is commonly enjoyed in Mexican culture? Mm-hmm. All the time. So the conchas are definitely a delicacy that's often enjoyed in Mexican culture, but it's also one of the one of the many items that's put on the altar during Day of the Dead to mm. honor the ancestors. And that in Pan de Muerto, which is like... A more of a like savory bread mm-hmm. so that definitely holds a big like celebratory tie as well and so whenever the day comes around my family definitely has conchas on the altar de muerto, and then we also do like more traditional like haitian cuisine as well as our mexican like food too so it's really nice to see the cross of our family culture all being celebrated on one table Another thing I noticed in your book is this really strong influence from different Asian cuisines, which you clearly get in the Bay Area from Chinese as well as Korean. Could you tell us a little bit about your dry fry green bean recipe? Because it looks so good. And I know there's like some family history around it, too. When writing the book, I definitely had to incorporate so many of the like Asian influences from California. Just so much of Northern California, especially, was built off of labor of people of color and Asian people in in particular as well. And like celebrating that is really important. But growing up, my favorite place to celebrate with my family was this vegan Chinese restaurant. And they would always do these really delicious dry fried green beans. It was just like such an amazing, flavorful, delicious dish that I think I like first had when I was like six years old. And it has never gotten old to me. It's just something that I really enjoy. That's wonderful. Um, I know we're going to run out of time, but I just encourage people to go look at your book for like the the Korean veggie pancakes and the fried chicken. Sweet and, and salty nori popcorn. And all of the amazing yeah. drinks that you have in there. Just like over the top amazing. Um, before we go, I wanted to ask you as are you still a teenager or are you 20 now? I'm 19. You're so 19. I'll be 20 next year. Okay. <laughs> I have a 19-year-old also. Um, oh, nice. Yes. I'm curious what, as someone who is 19, and I think you just finished mm-hmm. your first year of college at Cornell University, yeah. I'm curious what you're noticing about other teens, whether it's at school or at home or as you travel, and their interests in thinking about food. Great question. I feel like that a lot of, at least the teens at my school, really love to celebrate with food, whether that's like, oh, let's all get dinner on Friday night. Let's go out and like get dressed up or let's all cook for um, this person's birthday. Like there's such a celebration that comes with like cooking and eating food. And that is something that I really enjoy. I don't think it's like often expressed very deeply and like to the extent of like one of their passions. But I really like how food is definitely a celebration for many people and especially like my peers, we definitely love to eat together and cook together and celebrate in that way. And it can be anything. It doesn't have to be a four-course meal. But it can be some tomato pasta that they wanted to do one night. So I don't know. I really enjoy it. And some of my favorite memories have been cooking in the dorms with them. 
That's fabulous. I'm so glad you have that at school because that can be a challenging thing when you go to college. (laughs) This book is amazing. And Rahana, thank you so much. This has been really amazing, you guys. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. And congratulations. Yes, you're amazing. Oh, my God. So proud of you. (laughs) That was Rahana Bizaret Martinez, author of Flavor Plus Us. Want to make that Mexican concha recipe for Day of the Dead? It's on our website. And so is her recipe for dry fried green beans. It's not too early to start thinking about your Thanksgiving sides. Go to ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up after the break, Tegan talks with a family that's using their lawn to feed the community. We invite people to please take the strawberries. People love to joke like, oh, I'm just going to like grab one really quick. And we're like, please grab as many as you can find. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Have you ever looked out at a lawn and thought, what a waste? Well, that's not what you'll think when you hear this next story. Producer Tegan Engel visited the home of a New Britain family, using their yard to nurture the community. Christiana Smith and their spouse, Mike Saracino, bought their first home in New Britain in 2021. Christiana is a cultural worker and facilitator, and Mike is a sex therapist and relationship coach. They share a passion for community, healing work, and gardens. I spoke with them this spring when the first sprouts were popping up. What inspired you to transform your front yard into a garden? So one of the things we always wanted with moving into a house was the ability to have a garden, to farm some stuff on the land, maybe get a few animals. And when we moved here, we loved everything about the house, and we loved that there was no trees and everything was clear, but the only land that was really available to grow on was the corner lot. Full sun all day, there was nothing there. Uh, We also really, really hate grass, and so we decided that we were going to cover as much of it as possible with plants and garden beds. So we had this quick back and forth when we first moved in of like, should we make a small garden and maybe we make it bigger? And then I was like, or we could just make our dream garden right off the bat and see how it goes. 
and we dreamed up like the the coolest garden that we could think of and it was a little bit of like I wanted a tunnel and then Mike wanted fruit trees and then I wanted a chessboard and then Mike wanted a berry patch and then like eventually it was just the whole the whole thing it was just like back and forth and back and forth until it was ginormous where did you all learn how to garden had you been gardening before how did you learn how to do all this? Uh, so my grandparents and my father's side are from Sicily, and they have a garden in Middletown that they've been working on since before the Vietnam War. And so uh, as they got older, they weren't able to take care of the whole garden, so they offered for us, uh, Christy and I only at the time, to come over and start tilling the land, having a section of the garden. And so we did that for quite a few years progressively getting more and more of their land to grow. So that's really where we kind of started. So can we take a walk and look at your garden? Yeah, we can take a walk and look at the garden. I would love that. Great. So what's over here? We have these native plum trees that are just getting started. They're only a couple feet off the ground right now. That is a quince tree. All but one of our trees, like fruit trees, are dwarf trees, which means they won't get super full-size trees. They're all going to tap out at around... 12 feet. So this is a quince tree. My friend told me that everybody used to have a quince because they have a high pectin Mm -hmm. content. So that's like a thing that you can use to make your own jellies and jams without having to go to the store. We have a couple baby fig trees. And this arbor here has two different types of grapes. Mike knows more about the grapes. I'm going to hand it to him. Yeah, we have a uh, Concord grape, which is your typical purple grape that you get jelly from. That should take up most of the arbor. And then on the other side is a Somerset grape. And these are grapes for eating, not for winemaking. Great. And we have a visitor here. Who is this little person? Rosaria. Rosaria. And who are you in this? Are you part of this family? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a part of this family. <laughs> and Ro, can you tell me, do you have a special place in this garden that's your garden? It's my own garden. I love so much. Yeah, what do you love about it? All of it. Can you show me where it is? Uh-huh. Okay, so we're walking around to the front yard where there are lots of different garden beds, and we are stopping. Can you describe a little what you built over here? Yes. So this is like the corner of the corner lot, and we made all of our garden beds are made out of cinder blocks, so we could be like really specific and intentional about how we built the shapes. And so we have a triangle-shaped bed right on the corner of the property that's just mostly a strawberry bed. So this is where we've, we invite people to please take the strawberries. People love to joke like, oh, I'm just going to like grab one really quick. And we're like, please grab as many as you can find. And we, I heard you had some kids come and visit. Yeah, we have uh, three schools that are nearby. So lots of kids, elementary, middle, and high school, always walk by here. And so whenever they're by, we're outside, we tell them, hey, come pick some strawberries. You know, take as many as you want. Some kids say no thanks and move on. But a lot of kids just jump right in there and start taking them. And so they'll come by at night. They'll ride by on their bikes and be like, hey, can I grab some strawberries? Sure. And they'll take them all. That's so great. And how much did you get last time they picked? So they picked a good amount. And then the next day I went out and I pulled out eight pounds of strawberries. (laughs) Wow. That's very impressive. All right. So what else do we have over here in the front? I wanted something that was like super inviting. We made a really large 
double cattle panel arch, which we're training some climbing roses on right now. And on either side of the arch is, is flower beds. The flower beds have a lot of herbs in them, specifically like a lot of yarrow and a lot of sage and a lot of chives because I like to cook with all of those things. And then this sort of, I don't know how you would describe the shape of the chessboard. There's like a three-sided bed with a chessboard in the middle of it because one of our favorite things to do is play giant chess when we go out places. And I said, well, what if we just had one of those at our house? So we made a chessboard and I call the beds the salad bar because this is where we have most of our like greens, our lettuces. Um, it's where we have a lot more of our herbs. I train cucumbers and beans on the back and this is where the tomatoes are. And then there's like a lot of flowers and a lot of herbs interplanted because we do a lot of interplanting to help with ecosystem and to help keep bugs down and not have to have a lot of pesticides. Our whole philosophy is if we build it and leave enough of it wild and just kind of let it do its own thing that the ecosystem will balance out. So we have all kinds of praying mantises and wasps and birds. We set up, I think, about eight bird feeders to bring the birds in that help. And so all of that really keeps down on all the pests. But the only thing we use is uh, organic bacteria on our fruit trees to outcompete other bacteria to keep them healthy. But no chemicals, nothing like that. Mm. We have seen how quickly habitat responds to having things here. So we have bunnies and birds and butterflies and and native bees that have found a home here and I feel like I didn't realize it would be such an immediate change with the ecosystem. And how have you noticed that planting this garden has affected the way that you all are together as a family and also your relationship with the land that you live on? Being outside in the garden helps us all slow down a little bit like our jobs can sometimes be really stressful and having the garden just being able to like walk and do a loop is so good to the nervous system. So we've made the decision to homeschool Rosaria, at least for the first few years of elementary school. And so the garden gives us a chance to take her outside and teach a whole bunch of different lessons. So we've done chemistry, ecology, biology, weather and earth sciences, math, in addition to some kinesthetics, you know, lifting stuff, digging, etc. And so it's really nice to just go outside and essentially have a whole classroom for her. That's great. You have a natural classroom right here. And then also like gardening is such a great practice in grounding to be able to be liberatory. The first like black gardener I ever really witnessed were Leah and Naima Peniman of Soulfire Farm. And I was like, wait, black people garden still? Like it's okay to do that and it's not oppressive. And I had only had our little tiny garden and being a black person who is creating like a generative relationship with land is a liberatory thing. And I love being able to learn and practice. And so I feel like my garden and my relationship with my family is the first place that I practice the things that I believe make large collective work possible. You're listening to Tegan Engel getting a tour of the garden Christiana Smith and Mike Saracino have created to feed their family and their community. That natural classroom they talked about includes a little library where neighborhood kids can grab a book. They're feeding young bodies and minds. Christiana mentioned sisters Naima and Leah Peniman of Soulfire Farm. Leah talked about how Black Americans are reclaiming their relationship with nature 
on an episode of Disrupted, and I'll link to it on our show page, ctpublic.org seasoned. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, what impact is the garden having on the neighbors? And Tegan checks in to see how the summer went and what's coming up this fall. So we have neighbors, not just the immediate folks, but down the road, other streets, even the other side of town, who will drive by, beep the horn, say hi, ask us when the pumpkins are coming in so they can come by and get one. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Before the break, producer Tegan Engel was talking with New Britain residents Christiana Smith and Mike Saracino about how and why they transformed their small yard into a pick-what-you-need garden for their community. How have you noticed that the garden has affected your neighbors and your community? How has it impacted them? I think that it gives people something to smile about. The amount of people who have left us notes or pulled over or walked by to tell us that like being near the garden makes them happy, that it's the best part of their commute or they're having a hard day so they're just going to walk by. Like That praxis and joy is really lovely. I'd like to think that it also is sort of breaking this thing that I think suburbia has which is like everything is mine right like that we are really siloed and like my stuff our neighbors are starting to be in the praxis of sharing with us and I think that that does something to everyone like it makes a community feel like a community and I think we have really lovely neighbors I think they're really cool people I would say like the joy part and the part of like sharing even if that's not like an innate impulse So we have neighbors, not just the immediate folks, but folks down the road, other streets, even the other side of town, who will drive by, beep the horn, say hi, ask us when the pumpkins are coming in so they can come by and get one. And it's really wonderful. It happens about every 20 minutes, every time we're outside, so it's kind of hard to get some stuff done. But it's really nice being able to talk to folks. It's really nice sitting inside in our kitchen, looking out the front window, and you just see people walking and stopping and taking in the flowers, enjoying it. And the smiles folks get when we give them a bouquet or, hey, we made some extra jam. Would you like some? They just light up like a kid on Christmas. Did you have a neighbor who wanted to say hello? Hi, are you a neighbor of this beautiful garden? Yeah, I'm two houses down to the south. What's your name? My name's Paul. What do you think of this garden? How has it affected your life in this neighborhood? It's kind of nice that I have like-minded neighbors who you can kind of see it on the block, the intersection between people who have like a different ecological view, we'll say, and then there's kind of like a more postage stamp lawn type aesthetic and it's interesting to see the intersection of those two so I feel like with like-minded people on the block it's kind of like a rising tide lifts all ships so you know we've all got kind of fruit trees going on and cross-pollination happens and crops are shared and it's really cool to see a community come together like that. What is your ecological view that you feel like is important to be lifting up? We're trying to get as much as we can locally which includes our own backyards, so just 
growing food here means that we're not relying on anybody else or any systems to bring us our food. It's a little bit more self-reliant and less carbon dependent. Yeah, and you're having a positive impact by changing lawn into flowers and trees and food instead of lawn that has to be watered. And It just looks better. <laughs> Thank you for stopping by to say hi. It's really nice to meet you. You too. Have a good day. So beautiful. What are some of your favorite things in your garden that make you happy? The amount of flowers we have. I love all the flowers we have. Our house is filled with bouquets. The reason we give so many away is because I just want to keep making them. And I love them and they make me super happy. What are some of the values that you hold really dear in your lives that you feel like you're manifesting in the garden? Yeah, I think one of them I would say is abolition, right? Like I believe in a world beyond any type of state-sanctioned violence. I believe like in our ability to be accountable to one another and hold really deep transformative justice and community. And I think that the garden shares that through sharing, right? Like I think that part of reclaiming our ability to take care of one another is just like being open with sharing. Not just sharing like the vegetables and the fruit and the herbs and stuff. It's also just like to share the visual space, right? There isn't a fence between the garden and the public and that's intentional. And I would say the other one that's sort of like wrapped up in abolition would be we're queer as heck. And I had this like back and forth about whether or not it was sort of like virtue signally to put up all of our pride flags. And I landed on, no, I'm going to put up these pride flags. And the amount of people like specifically like young queer people who have like come to the garden openly saying I was not having a good day. I didn't feel like I was okay. I feel like I belong in this moment or in this place. To me, what has been such an affirmation and why things like just putting up a flag is important and then like having the praxis of being able to say like do you want water do you want food do you need a salad do you like what do you need now that you've stopped and you feel belonging here that to me like being sort of like a mental refuge for people is really important to me I think another value cluster that we have is being able to show up in our integrity as our false selves and fully present when we are in relationship with folks. And so, yes, that happens when the neighbors come by and we're you know, hearing about their gardens, talking about ours, but it also is true for us. So as a therapist, especially during the pandemic, especially all the policies happening now and kind of the legacy of Trump in office and everything, work is very heavy. A lot of my clients are, are really going through it right now. And so being able to, for me personally, going outside in the garden, spend three or four hours in the day in the sun, in the dirt, just digging, doing stuff with my hands allows me to reset, recharge, be present in that so I can be present for the folks that I'm helping later in the evening. I love it. Thank you both so much. Thanks for coming. Thank you for coming. recently followed up with Christiana to hear how the garden flourished over the summer and what's coming up this fall. Hi, Christiana. Hi, Dagan. In the spirit of sharing food and flowers with your community, how was summer in your garden? I think summer was great. We had an abundance of food. 
This summer, we grew a lot of cherry tomatoes. One thing I've found in the past like four years is that it's really hard outside with the temperatures fluctuating as much to have a really good crop of like larger heirloom tomatoes. So I just went with smaller varieties and they were incredible. We grew okra. I had four crops of rhubarb, lots of herbs, pumpkins, two beds of hot peppers, We got our first crop of blueberries and our first crop of grapes. It was a really small crop, but it was there. And our apple tree had its first apples. So exciting. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I went a little pumpkin nuts and I grew like 12 plus pumpkins. Now we like have all these pumpkins. So I'm like, do you want a pumpkin? Do you want roasted pumpkin? Our raspberries are the thing that's really kicking off right now. We did this when our strawberries were in season two, where we just like collected as much as we could. And then we make jam and then we just hand out jam to people. What are some of the responses that you're hearing from people as the season is continuing and more people are learning about what you're doing? One of the things that surprises people when they like realize what we're doing here is that we're not charging money. We had New Britain Roots come by. New Britain Roots is like a local gardening program. They have high schoolers that work with them and help in their gardens and then also come into community gardens as well. So they helped us do our big, big harvest to sort of close out our summer crops. We were like, okay, thank you so much. Now, please take as much food as you want. And one of the teens was like, you mean for free? And I was like, well, technically not for free because like you just worked. But also, yes, definitely for free. Please just take the food. And then the other day, somebody just pulled up that I had never met in my life and said, you have the most beautiful garden in New Britain. Oh, that is the sweetest. And so you mentioned (laughs) pumpkins in the fall and more okra and raspberries. Are there other things that are still growing now? We have some dandelion greens. We have a bunch of different greens that come in in the winter and in the early spring. So those are sort of having their second flush. We've put down a bunch of radishes that we're going to have harvested before the winter Like there's a lot of things from the spring that sort of self-seed like radishes and dill and greens that sort of come back up that we get like a mini harvest from between now and when frost hits. So that's what we're that's what we're looking towards right now. Mm. And then um, my husband did this labor of putting in over a thousand crocuses and glory of the snows. Um, last year so they had a mini bloom this year and next year will be their first actual seasonal bloom so as soon as the snow starts to melt we'll have this like fairy land of purples and pinks that comes up over the garden so we're really excited for that that is beautiful (laughs) thank you so much for catching up with me absolutely thank you okay bye bye (laughs) that was tegan engel catching up with christiana smith You can follow the progress of their garden on Instagram. It's at OurGardenNB. I'm Robin Doyon-Aiken, and Seasoned is produced by me and Tegan and Katie Tolerski, Meg Dalton, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. Our fall interns are Joey Morgan and Letitia Peters. Before we go, if you have a question about how to brine, roast, or carve a turkey, we're planning our Thanksgiving Day show now. Send your cooking questions to seasoned at ctpublic.org, and our chefs will answer your questions on the air. To keep up with the latest on Seasoned, follow at ctpublic on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and we're at WNPR on X. 
Catch This and past episodes of Seasoned covering local ice cream, farms, barbecue, and more wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. 